Hello, and welcome back to another rudimentary episode of Rock and Roll History, the podcast where we stage dive headfirst in all the hits, misses, and often overlooked songs and stories throughout the history of rock and roll. I'm your host, Rumpelstiltskin. But who cares? Come on, everybody. Let's go rock and roll. Before we get started today, I just want to apologize for the delay of this episode. I recently started a new job and sadly don't get to slack off on a computer all day anymore. That's how I would research and write most of my episodes. And there's also been some trouble with my personal life, but that's neither here nor there. You know, it seems like I'm always apologizing to you guys, and I don't really know why. I do this little janky show all by myself, and it's quite a lot of work to even get just one measly little episode out. I don't profit from this, and I just do it all to further the education of rock and roll while keeping all you bing-bongs entertained. But you know, I get satisfaction seeing that you guys are listening, and it really makes it all worthwhile to me. This show is a labor of love, a love for you, my loyal listeners. So once again... Thanks for your patience, folks. I do it for you, and I mean that from the bottom of my heart. And I promise, I'll get to a more regular schedule as soon as I figure out how to adjust my swing to all these curveballs life insists on throwing at me. Do not lose faith. Well, that is if you had faith at all to begin with. Anyway, on with the show! Today's episode takes place in July 1964. The United States President Lyndon B. Johnson had just signed both the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act into law as the Rolling Stones embark on their first U.S. tour. The Beach Boys' hit, I Get Around, has just reached number one as the Beatles' film A Hard Day's Night premieres in London. Also at this time, Los Angeles Dodgers legend Sandy Koufax has just recently pitched his third career no-hitter as NASA's Ranger 7 probe is being prepared for launch. It would be the first successful space probe mission that would send close-up images of the moon back to Earth. It sent back over 4,000 images before crash landing into the lunar surface. And of course, Elvis Presley. His movie Viva Las Vegas had just been released, bringing in $4.67 million, just barely edging out the Beatles' Hard Day's Night at the box office, with the Hard Day's Night earning only $4.47 million. This would be Elvis's only win over the Beatles for that entire year. Wow, the summer of 64. What a time to be alive. Our story today follows a man named Shel Talmy. He's another behind-the-scenes type figure of rock and roll history. He played a key role in some of rock and music's most iconic hits. And while his name might ring a bell for some of you few rock and roll diehards out there, do you really know who he is? Probably not. And so that's why we're here today. But before we get to one of the greatest summers in the history of human history, let's roll that clock on back and take the old time machine all the way back to the not-so-exciting summer of 1937 and find out who this mysterious man behind the rock and roll curtain, Shell Talmy, really is. Sheldon Shell Talmy was born August 11, 1937 in Chicago, Illinois. 
There isn't much about this time in his life I could really figure out during my research other than his father was a dentist and his mother always wanted to live in Los Angeles. Sho was a very bright young boy, and by the age of 13 he would frequently be featured on the NBC radio and television program called Quiz Kids, a trivia show that showcased the brainiest of brainiac kids in the Chicago area. As a kid, he grew up listening to basically the Great American Songbook, but then he also discovered R&B, and that really got him fascinated with music. The first record he remembers falling in love with was a song called G by The Crows, a catchy doo-wop style song, which was the first R&B record to sell over a million copies. It was released by the independent Rama Records, and this would be the first time that Shell really found himself getting into music. By 1950, his father's dentistry business was doing well enough that he could fulfill his wife's dream and move the family out west to Los Angeles. The family then moves, and at this point, Shell is now about 15 and a half years old. He begins attending Fairfax High School, which you may be familiar with by now. If you've been paying attention to our other episodes, it always comes up. I don't know what it is about this school. Other attendees include Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, Phil Spector, Herb Alpert, just to name a few. And I mean, even Michael Jackson went to this freaking place. I don't know what they got pumping through the water fountains in there, but one day I might have to hop the fence after hours and take a sip. Anyway, after high school and college, Shell began to work. Since back in his quiz kid days, he always was enamored with the glamour of TV. He knew deep down that he wanted to be in the business. And so he found a job working for ABC Television Network, and he set his sights on being a big-time television producer. He first started as a page, then moved into cue cards, and then he got promoted to floor management. He worked on many TV shows and some specials like the Liberace show and about four Frank Sinatra specials. He wasn't really happy with the work, though, and found himself getting tired of the politics of working for a major studio. It should also be noted that his vision was rapidly decreasing at this time. It was deteriorating due to a hereditary condition. So he thought working with a visual medium probably wasn't his best option. But this gave him the idea to work with sound. He did love music, too. If he couldn't be a film producer, he could produce records instead. So one night shortly after leaving ABC, he heads to Martoni's, a popular Italian restaurant. Shell says it was known for being the hangout place in Hollywood for the music biz at the time. So he goes down to Martoni's and he meets up with a friend there. His friend was an Englishman named Phil Yeend. Phil was the owner of a small independent studio called Conway Recorders. Shell told Phil of his predicament, and being the good friend that Phil was, he asked him to come on down to his studio and learn how to be an engineer. Shell said, sure. And then Phil showed him around the studio and taught him how to do everything. How he showed him how everything worked, he showed him how to use microphones, how to mix, how to work the console with his three-track recording setup. Shell seemed to pick everything up quickly, and then only three days later, Phil tossed him out into the deep end. Shell was going to engineer his first solo recording. Now just about every source I've got says the first session of, that he ever worked on was for a song called Falling Star by Debbie Sharon. However, in a video interview I watched, Shell states that it was a jazz combo that he couldn't remember the name of. Anyway, whoever it was, Shell found that the session was going great. Everything was going swimmingly, right up until they needed an edit. Shell's heart began to race, and sweat began to pour from his brow. He sort of remembered watching Phil doing it at it once, and splicing the tape freehand with a pair of scissors. 
So based off memory alone, he went in and attempted surgery on the tape. To his own surprise, though, it worked, and the session went on. Phil was also impressed by this, and with his work and his ability to quickly learn, so he gave Shell a lot of leeway in the studio. He let him mess around with different equipment and microphones, and basically gave him free reign to play around the studio uh, in the downtime between the sessions. Shell seemed to have a natural talent, and ended up working on regular sessions. He would then engineer alongside Phil, and the two would try different production techniques. They would experiment with separation and recording levels, building dividers with carpet to isolate different instruments and isolate the vocals. All stuff that is completely commonplace today. But back then, recording was still somewhat in its infancy, so this was all really groundbreaking stuff. Shell ended up working on some early surf hits like Surfer Stomp by the Marquettes and The Percolator Twist by Billy Joe and the Checkmates. He even worked with Renee Hall and Bumps Blackwell, who, if you remember back in our last episode, were about to have a falling out, which would lead Blackwell to discover the legendary bass player Carol Kay of Wrecking Crew fame, who Shell would then also go on to work with. But back to the story. During this time in the studio, Phil Yen, being the proud Englishman that he was, would always tell Shell about how he just had to visit London one day, how he must go, how it was so great, and yada, yada, yada. This would go on quite a lot, so much so that eventually one day Shell cracked and told Phil, okay, I give in. Shell then decided to take a five-week vacation and travel around London, the rest of England, and maybe even see Paris and all that while he was at it. But since he didn't have much money, he was hoping to pick up some recording work while he was out there, so he could keep some money in his pocket during all of his adventuring. Before he left, he was telling one of his A&R buddies from Capitol Records named Nick Vinay about his planned adventure and the hopes to find some pocket money work. Nick then had the funny idea to give a couple acetates to him uh, that, he, that were his own from Capitol Records. He told Shell to show them off to the studios over there and straight up lie to them and tell them that he produced them himself. This would surely grab their attention and get him some work. After a chuckle, Shell said, cool, then grabbed the acetates and headed out to jolly good England. After a little time floating around London, Shell, through some of his connections, managed to get an appointment with Decca Records representative named Dick Rowe. Upon entering the appointment, Shell thought to himself that he expected the English perception of Americans to be these loud, brash characters. So he played the part and was brash, very brash. He walked into the meeting acting like he owned the place, acting as if he was some big time hotshot producer. During this braggadocious display, he casually handed the acetates over and was like, yeah, here's a few of my new ones or whatever, check them out. And then they put the songs on and the songs that would come out of the speakers was some bougie Lou Rawls tune and Surf and Safari by the Beach Boys. After the song, there was a brief silence. The two look up at each other. Then the next words to come out of Dick Rowe's mouth were, You start today. So hilariously, the plan worked, and they fell for his act, and they wanted him to bring his American expertise to their English studio. But of course, before he accepted the job and still acting the hotshot, Shell said the only way he would do it was if he was recognized as an independent producer and got paid royalties. This was almost outlandish. A&R guys at the time were strictly on salary, but Dick, being a very pro-American kind of guy, said okay and gave him a job. He couldn't believe he pulled it off, but he did. 
Shell was now an independent record producer in England about to earn some royalties. His first project to record seemed like it was a test from Decca. They sent him a group of three Irish harmonica players and told him to have at it. The group was called The Bachelors, and they literally could only play harmonica. Shell had to show them how to do just about everything. He had to show them what to sing, how to sing, how to do the harmonies, and then pick who sang the lead, and all that kind of stuff. What resulted was a song called Charmaine, and to everyone's surprise, it was actually became a hit. This cemented his position working for Decca. After being at Decca for a little while, not much of note happened for Shell other than working for a few songs and stuff like Chad and Jeremy and random things like that. The bigwigs at the label then began to sort of poke at him with a figurative stick as if to say, hey American hotshot, do something. They then brought it to his attention that as part of his job, he was expected to bring in some talent. So to his pleasure, he began to go out and hit the clubs every night for work. And he began to search around all the clubs in London, seeking out amateur acts that may have some potential. The first two projects he found were Manfred Mann and Georgie Fame. He brought them in to record, but both were rejected. But more on that later. This is when he decided that maybe he should just go fully independent, since it seemed like the majors didn't know what talent was if it hit them in the face. And so here we are, in July 1964, where our story takes place. One day, while visiting one of his publishers on Denmark Street, Shell was trying to figure out what the next move in his music career would be. Just then, a manager for a band called The Ravens walked in the building. Shell, being the only one in the reception area at the, that specific moment, greeted him. The manager asked, hey, would anybody be interested in listening to The Ravens' new acetate? Shell looked around and said, uh, yeah, I'm here, sure, I'll, I'll take a listen. And even though it really wasn't in his power to do so. So then he gave it a listen, and this was it, he thought. Now, this is a band that really has potential. He liked what he heard, and he wanted to sign the band on the spot. But he didn't have a lot of money, though, so he took them to Pie Records, that's P-Y-E, Pie Records, to get them a deal. When they got there, the label was telling them to, to do Little Richard songs and various other covers, and so reluctantly they all did, but none of them were really digging it. Neither Shell nor the band wanted to do that kind of stuff. Shell wanted to do what he had heard on the acetate, you know, more of the original stuff, and so they tried, and then they sent a couple original singles out, but the singles didn't really catch on. And now stuck between a rock and a hard place, the band, and with producer Shell Tommy leading the way, circled up and had to decide what their next move would be. They had to have a hit, otherwise both their careers were probably toast. After some back and forth, the band's quiet singer sheepishly stepped forwards and says, well, I got this new song I could try, and I, th I think it's excellent. This young man was named Ray Davies. Or if you're English, Ray Davis. And then he played the song for everyone. The gang instantly latched onto it. Shell reacted kind of like, uh, yeah, that's great. Let's go and do that right now. The song that resulted was... You Really Got Me. Yes, folks, shortly before releasing the first two flops, the Ravens changed their name to The Kinks, a band discovered by Shell Tommy out of pure luck. He just so happened to be in the right place at the right time. Imagine if he wasn't there. Imagine. 
No one else was in the reception area. If that was the case, no one could have ever discovered the kinks. Or if they did, they wouldn't have had the guidance and recording experience of badass Shell Talmy to capture them in that exact moment of time. And we may never have had one of the most game-changing recording productions in rock and roll history. You really got me by the kinks. I don't think I need to explain this song to you, but it kicks off with those chords, practically announcing that, hey, knock knock, the youth is here, our guitars sound awesome, and things are about to change. The guitar tones, the recording quality, the whole production makes for a song that would ignite a flame in many young musicians around the London area and beyond. Speaking of guitar tones, a quick side note, there is the famous urban legend about the guitar solo in the song. The legend goes that the guitar solo was actually done by Jimmy Page since he was a young studio musician around this time. But before we break this down, let's just take a second to appreciate this absolute gem of rock and roll history. So what do you think, Page or Dave? Dave being Dave Davies, guitar player of the Kinks, Ray's brother for those of you not familiar with the group. So what do you think? Place your bets now. Okay, got it? And the winner is... Well, let's let Shell tell me himself answer that. <laughs> I suppose you get asked all the time about the guitar solo? It's finally slacked off after I've, <laughs> I've, I've responded probably about 5,000 times <laughs> that Jimmy Page did not do the solo and that Dave Davies did. And uh, at one point, Jimmy did actually claim to do it, but then he eventually said, no, I didn't do it. Dave did it. That was from the fantastic interview conducted by the Produce Like a Pro uh, YouTube channel. I'll have the full link to the interview on the website. So there you have it, folks. Dave Davies, baby. All the way. Iconic. So, of course, the song was a massive hit, and the label wanted more. They wanted singles and a couple albums from the Tommy Kings combo. Luckily, to Shell's relief, it turns out Ray Davies just so happened to be prolific and can easily write songs. He would write every night. Shell says each morning at the studio, Ray would show up with 10 or 12 new songs for the band to pick from, and this, of course, made Shell's life much easier. And this would carry the Kinks on down the road to eventually earning them that legend status that they have and deserve today. And since we're on the Kinks legend train right now, I just want to note that the drummer on the early Kinks sessions, including You Really Got Me and their first album, was in fact studio drummer Bobby Graham. Don't believe me? Here's a clip from that same previous interview. You know, I, I used Bobby Graham for drums, by the way, because at that point they did not have a drummer. And Bobby Graham was the drummer to go to in, in England at that point in time. That made life a lot easier also. So he was on You Really Got Me and, uh, and on the album. Yep. Straight from the horse's mouth. So carrying on, after the king, Shell then moves on to find his next project. Fate seemed to follow Tommy around everywhere he went. It turned out just by chance that a girl who happened to be working for him part-time had some friends. They're named Kit Lambert and Chris Stamp. They were managing a local act and asked her to ask Shell if he would accompany them to an upcoming gig to watch their band play. Shell figured why not and decided a gig would be fun. He wasn't really expecting much since the show was in a local church. Shell then arrives just as the young hopped-up band going by the name The High Numbers takes the stage. Shell walks up to Kit Lambert, and as the band tears into their rendition of a song called I'm a Man, Shell was quite impressed. He liked the sound and the style the band had. 
He thought that the singer had a presence. And so about eight bars into the song, he leans over to Lambert and says, Yes, I'll sign you. Shell said at the time it was the best rock band he had ever heard in England because they sounded so American. Of course, if you haven't put it together yet, the band The High Numbers would of course change their name to The Who. Do I really need to say anything else? Shell had some money from his previous hits and signed them to his own personal label he was now starting up. However, he needed a measure for distribution and went back to the States and made a deal with DECA in America, who was a separate entity from DECA back in England. Turns out US DECA Records was a bunch of very nice, but out of touch 80 year olds. They had no clue what the heck they were doing anymore since rock and roll and popular music was so rapidly changing. They needed to catch up and luckily for them, Shell Talmy had his finger on the pulse. They agreed on a deal. So now heading into the studio with the distribution deal set, Shell and The Who are deciding how to make a debut. What would be a song that could compete in this new exciting time in music? That's when guitarist Pete Townsend brings a song up to the table that he coincidentally was inspired to write after hearing You Really Got Me by The Kinks for the first time. This first song starts off with its own set of iconic introductory chords. The song? I Can't Explain. Great effing song. Can't Explain would go on to be a hit. Then they would release their second single called Anyway, Anyhow, Anywhere, which featured one of the first iterations of recorded guitar feedback. Upon receiving the tape, the old fogies at DECA thought that they had received a damaged copy, and Shell had to reassure them that nope, this was in fact what the kids were into. The next song they would release, of course, would be a song that announces to not only Decca Records, but to the entire world that this is what the kids are into. The song, of course, My Generation. Boom, 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 all hits. My Generation is one of the most important rock and roll songs of all time, and there's no need for me to go into that. We have all heard the song, we all love the song, we could all hear the song a thousand times and still love it. It's bass solo of all bass solos, and Keith fills. Ooh, man. Instead of dissecting the obvious importance of this song, I'd rather like to point out that during these sessions, Shell began experimenting with microphone placement. He even mic'd up Keith Moon's drums with 12 microphones. This was unheard of at the time. At the time, it was common to use like three or four mics on the drums. That was the common practice at the time. And all the other engineers warned him of phase issues and scoffed as he screwed them into place. The sound ended up sounding very high def and dynamic, and is now almost an industry standard way of recording and mixing drums when in the studio. For the guitars, he would mic up Pete Townsend's amp with three microphones. One a couple inches away from the speaker, another about three feet away, and then one more across the room. He'd combine all the mics together and this would give the guitar a huge sound that would change how the guitar was approached and change the sound of electric guitar in rock and roll music altogether. And it's basically responsible for feeding Pete's need for more volume, which in turn pretty much created martial amps. So yeah, kind of a big deal. After his massive success with The Who, one of the early bands he first discovered, Manfred Mann, managed to get themselves signed after another audition. 
The label reached out to Shell and asked that since he recognized their talent early on, he should take them under his wing and turn them into hit makers as well. So he did, and then after that would go on to work with many, many legendary iconic bands that all changed rock and roll across the pond. Bands like The Creation, The Small Faces, and producing classics like Friday on My Mind by The Easy Beats. He even did a couple early David Bowie recordings while he was still going by the name Davy Jones. Seems like everywhere Shell went, epic rock and roll seemed to follow. He liked working in IBC studios mostly, which is where he would do most of his work, including My Generation, and he would go on to produce many more songs and many more hits in there. Turns out his little five-week vacation just so happened to turn into a 17-year stay, and during that time, he completely reshaped rock and roll music and its sound. On a whim, by being in the right place at the right time, over and over again, and on the fly with very little experience. He faked it till he maked it. He did it himself. A very rock and roll approach. These songs became legendary and anthemic for younger generations who would go on and branch out into other directions of rock and roll on the rock and roll tree, starting bands of their own. A lot of this music he recorded is regarded as many as being proto-punk. Once punk got going, he even recorded The Damned, who was the first quote-unquote punk band to release a single. Maybe that's not really true, and maybe he didn't record their best stuff or their best album or anything, but it shows that he for sure left his mark enough to even be considered as a producer for such a project. And it wasn't just punk, because he was also really good at recording folk music too. But no, really it was the overall whole attitude and approach to rock and roll Shell had, and that allowed rock and roll to get wild again and blossom into how we all know and love it today. His natural talent and knack for capturing rock and roll and bringing it to life changed everything. He was innovative and was a key factor in getting these bands up and off the ground, which of course had an undeniable impact. Just saying the names of the bands he worked with reads like a Rolling Stone best of rock and roll bands of all times list. By being in the right place at the right time and taking the initiative to do it himself and his way, Shell became one of the most important producers of all time and shows that if you have the drive to achieve something, talent will follow. And time just might put you in the right place and give you an opportunity to forever change the world, even if you have to fool a few people to get there. So that concludes another episode of Rock and Roll History. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, feel free to email me at rnrhistorypod at gmail.com. Or you can leave a comment on our website at www.rockandrollhistory.com. And don't forget to rock and roll!